So tomorrow is the second Monday in October, a holiday increasingly known as Indigenous Peoples Day. Renaming that day from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day shifts our focus from celebrating and centering the beginning of European colonization of this land and this continent to remembering and honoring that centuries before the indigenous peoples of this land had developed advanced agriculture, sophisticated education and culture, and extensive transportation networks. So on this Sunday before Indigenous Peoples Day, it's both important and honestly it's haunting to recall that in 1492 when European invaders first arrived, there were an estimated 112 million, 112 million indigenous inhabitants of this continent. Just 150 years later, in 1650, European colonizers had decimated the indigenous population to approximately 6 million. 112 million to 6 million in a century and a half. By the end of the 19th century, the indigenous population was 228,000. Depending on the sources that historians use, the total number of indigenous people killed, wiped out on this continent, it's any, somewhere between 90 and 99 percent. Somewhere between 90 and 99 percent. There's an old kind of one-liner joke that I think is meant in this sense of kind of skewering and the best of kind of comedic skewering that tries to get at the ways that this history of oppression continues to impact all of us today. It's trying to cut to the core of a difficult but important truth. It goes like this. Given all the problems still going on in the U.S. today, it's almost like the U.S. was built on top of ancient Indian burial grounds. <laughs> Devastatingly, it is exactly like that in a really, really t terrible way. As Faulkner said, the past is never dead. The past isn't even past. It's still deeply with us. And our collective failure to fully acknowledge and work toward authentic repentance and repair continues to fuel the systemic racism that is warping and roiling our body politic. Today. today, there are more than 573 federally recognized indigenous tribal nations in the mainline United States, but that also accounts for only one half of 1% of the total U.S. population. So indigenous people are only one half of 1% today. So much has been lost, but in remembering, we have the possibility of finding new ways forward. Often when I drive through downtown Frederick, many of you probably uh, drive into downtown Frederick, many of you notice this as well, I see a sign, you're proudly proclaiming, this city was founded in 1745. And that's impressive that the city of Frederick has been around, you know, 270-something years, more than three decades longer than the U.S. But as our chalice lighting reminded us, this land that we call Frederick is the ancestral and unceded land of the Piscataway people who have been on this land for 800 years or more and who remain an integral part of our community. The Piscataway people are still very much here. 800 years takes us back to the 13th century, more than three centuries before Columbus sailed the ocean blue and more than five centuries before the founding of this city and this county. So for this year's Indigenous Peoples Day, I want to share with you some insights from a remarkable book named one of the New York Times' top 100 books of the year. It's titled Indigenous Continent, The Epic Contest for North America by Pekka Hamalainen. 
who's a professor of American history at the University of Oxford. If you can read the, that really small print in the middle, which is a real test of your uh, eyesight, uh, you'll see that the New York Times book reviewer called this, quote, the single best book I've ever read on Native American history. That's pretty much the best you can hope for from a, from a book review. Uh, there's an uh, old entrenched version of the story that I learned in school, and that's perhaps the case for uh, many of you as well. The, the gist goes like this. In 1492, Columbus sailed from Spain, up there in the upper right-hand corner of the map, and came all the way down to the lower left-hand corner where there's that uh, red dot, uh, and landed on an island in the Caribbean. Now, that's not where he thought he was landing, but he landed on this island in the Caribbean that the indigenous, indigenous populations called a Yiti, or Quizquea, and that is now also known as Hispaniola. Uh, and that launched, as the way I was told the story, that launched this 400-year kind of inexorable, inevitable march of colonial expansion and conquest straight on through the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890. It was just kind of like 1492 to 1890, this, this steady march. But here's the problem. That way of telling the story has been done and, and, and is told with this huge European bias. It's only telling, like only drawing from European sources. In contrast, Hamelainen's book reveals a world that remained overwhelmingly indigenous well into the 19th century, well into the 1800s, and shows why we should speak of an indigenous America that only slowly and unevenly became a colonial one. Uh, to briefly go back to the beginning, around 11,000 years ago, as towards the end of the last ice age, ice sheets began to melt sufficiently enough that you see in blue coming down the west coast and you see in red coming um, through the land, you get these original inhabitants of the continent uh, traveling here by land and sea. 11,000 years ago, that's a heck of a lot of a long time before Columbus. Right, uh, and it's a, and that on an indigenous time scale, these here United States are a mere speck. On this land, indigenous peoples established diverse, thriving, resilient societies that included 143 distinct languages. And within these diverse cultures, there are fascinating alternatives to our Western culture uh, that's dominant today. It's similar to our UU seventh principle, that respect for the inherent worth and dignity of all people that we're trying to get right today. In a lot of ways, indigenous people already had that right a long time ago. We find indigenous societies in which kins in kinship, this all-pervasive sense of relatedness and mutual obligation, not just by individual right, but what we owe to one another. Other. That kinship became a central organizing principle. This relational worldview led to viewing this beautiful planet on which we find ourselves not as land waiting to be chopped up and divided as personal property, but as a shared resource held collectively in common for the benefit of all. There are also many indigenous societies in which women had significant personal freedom, wielded substantial political and economic influence, and went to war if they chose to. We've gone into detail on previous Indigenous Peoples Day about the heights that many indigenous societies uh, reached in the centuries before European colonization. These achievements belie the tales of Europeans, quote, discovering this land. That whole idea of the, uh, Europeans discovering is a Eurocentric myth grounded in a willful misconception that this land was underdeveloped or undeveloped prior to European arrival. 
As many European uh, indigenous scholars have urged us to do, it can be this really powerful paradigm shift that every time you see discovery related to Europeans, see that word cover buried within discover. This realization serves as a powerful reminder of all the ways that indigenous perspectives and truths and experiences have been tragically covered over. And once we begin to see that so much of what's been called European discovery is actually a covering of indigenous perspectives, so many new insights and possibilities can emerge. Now, Hamalayan's going to want to tell you that story in 500 pages. I'm going to try to tell it in about 15 minutes. So if you want more information, I'm just going to share with you a few highlights. But, but his book is really quite accessible. Uh, so let's get into it. What happens when we begin to flip the script and look not only at traditional Eurocentral accounts of colonization organization, but also at historical records from an indigenous perspective. Well, here's one prominent example. Along with perhaps many of you, I remember learning about Jamestown, Virginia, founded in 1610 on the James River as the first permanent English settlement on this continent. And growing up, it was presented to me as, again, part of this inevitable and growing colonial presence. You landed at Jamestown and just kind of expanded from there. But if we fast forward well more than a half a century after Jamestown's founding, let's go all the way to 1675, the reality we find is that English colonists were numbered at that point about 40,000, but they were still hugging the shores of the Chesapeake with precious little knowledge about the vast continent that was west of them and its many people, its many tongues, its many riches. At this point in 1675, or more than, well more than 150 years since Columbus' arrival, but at that point, there was still no complete European map of North America. Instead, each colonial power remained, for the most part, siloed in their perspective, because the colonial powers were also at war in competition with, with one another. The English, they knew about the Atlantic coast and the Hudson Bay, and the Spanish knew about New Mexico and Florida, and really only the French, owing to their more openness to alliances with native nations, had any inkling of the vast interior of this continent. A precise map of North America in 1675 would have been truly shocking to the white interlopers. The upshot is that this land remained very much an indigenous continent at this time. If we continue to the end of the 1600s, we find nearly simultaneous indigenous rebellions against European imperial ambitions in really all regions of North America, bringing English, French, and Spanish colonists near their breaking point. So even though these, the natives were uh, much diminished, they were still rebelling. Historians debate whether the simultaneity of these attacks was a coincidence or was it really a sign of this coordination between uh, indigenous peoples. Either way, these indigenous attacks were devastating blows to the Europeans. But I want to flip the script again and show you uh, another kind of visual artifact of this paradigm shift we're talking about. Uh, this is a map that was drawn on deerskin in 1721 by a member of the Catawba Confederacy. Uh, they're the indigenous inhabitants around the Catawba River that starts in what we now call North Carolina and flows down into South Carolina. This map was presented to the newly appointed governor of South Carolina and was presented in this hoped-for spirit of cooperation and connection that was so often betrayed, of Europeans betraying uh, treaties and agreements with natives. This map is really interesting on a number of levels, and there are many similar indigenous maps, but I'm only going to share this one as a representative example. 
The circles that, that you all kind of see there in the middle represent 11 Catawba towns, one Cherokee town, and one Chickasaw town. The square in the bottom right corner, that's Virginia. And Charlestown, now Charleston, uh, the capital of South Carolina, was then the capital, then they moved it to Columbia, uh, is drawn on the left and is that grid and then shows the, the harbor. If any of you are understandably thinking, wait, wait, hold up. Shouldn't Charleston be in the southeast corner, uh, you know, the lower right-hand corner? And shouldn't Virginia be north above Charleston? And the indigenous towns all adjusting accordingly? Well, here's the thing. This indigenous cartographer was less interested in the traditional European fetishization of cardinal directions. After all, they'd been here for thousands of years. They knew their way around. Uh, but this map is all about relationships. It's a stunning visual representation of that central organizing principle of kinship, that all-pervasive sense of relatedness and mutual obligation to, uh, to all human beings, but also to the earth and to the animals, uh, really kind of animist, that was so deeply influential of many indigenous populations. So in this uh, relational map, the mapmaker placed his own town, uh, Nassau, in the center. That's kind of understandable, because that was the perspective he was coming from. And then he, you see these seven paths, if you, if you count them up, connecting all the surrounding towns, both indigenous and European. You'll spot a single human figure, large, on the right, as well as a smaller human figure and animal on the left, uh, symbolizing the ongoing indigenous use of the land. He was trying to signal, like, it's not just free. We've been here a long time, and we're, we're still using it. Uh, and if you look at this map, you might think, especially from a European perspective, that these decentralized indigenous nations remained weak because they were so diverse and divided. Uh, but somewhat counterintuitively, it's actually that very decentralization that was a key strength to why the indigenous populations resisted European colonization as long as they did. Because although the Europeans had similar, uh, superior weapons, although they brought these diseases that were just tragically devastating to the indigenous populations, decentralization meant that there was no single person for the Europeans to defeat or co-opt. It's like a mini-headed hydra. If we fast forward a few decades to the late 1700s, we pass the founding of the U.S. in 1776. And in these early years, the fledgling U.S., it just didn't have the money or the power, or the soldiers to continue taking land from the indigenous population. So you see the US actually developing a similarly decentralized strategy. Uh, rather than trying to remove the Indians by force in a kind of top-down way, Congress sold millions of acres to land speculators, uh, they, who in turn would sell land in tracts of 160 or 640 or even 5,760 acre tracts. And once that land was sold, the colonists who the, who the land had been sold to, they then sort of felt the responsibility to fight the, and, and kick the indigenous people off the land. So what you had was Congress selling land that wasn't theirs in order to, and so you know, from this indigenous perspective, the land was long occupied and was not the US government's to sell. So in response to these repeated offenses, you see this indigenous resistance movements continuing to multiply, and the first 20 years of the United States were marked by nearly constant wars with Native Americans, absorbing nearly five-sixths of total federal expenditures year after year. That's what we're spending our money on, five-sixths of federal expenditures year after after year. Fast forwarding another century or so um, to the mid to late uh, 1800s, you see the, let me show you, uh, 
There you go. Uh, to the mid to late 1800s, the Cheyennes and the Apaches remained strong, and both the Lakotas, that's in the north, that kind of semicircle, and the uh, Comanches to the south continued to have substantial empires. You'll see that, the, you, you can't see this, but hopefully you can see that that's uh, Mexico at the bottom. And that semicircle at the top goes just over the US-Canadian uh, border, almost to Lake Winnipeg, for any of you who know where that is. So you're seeing, so you're basically seeing uh, this Lakota uh, Comanche stronghold that goes from north of what is now the Canadian border, basically south of San Antonio. So it was this tremendous shield that offered this umbrella of protection, not only for these two major tribes, but also for a huge number of small native nations. This is well into the 1800s that this vast protective shield continued to make this pretty substantial swath of the indigenous West all but indecipherable to the, the United States. So there's a lot more to say about all this, but I hope this has given you even just a taste of what it's like to see a perspective, not with a European bias, but more from an indigenous perspective. Uh, and if you're interested, particularly in this last piece about that last holdout of the Lakotas and the Comanches, Hamalayan uh, uh, has written two previous books on that, so the Comanche Empire, and in particular that Lakota book got a, a ton of uh, buzz, and people were really impressed by that. So if you want to go deeper in there, and I can continue on that there's been this uh, huge number of impressive books written about indigenous history that I look forward to sharing with you uh, in future Indigenous Peoples Days. For now, I'll share just a few. I, I don't want to just be stuck in the past. I want to take a glimpse at the present and the future. I'll just give you a few quick examples uh, of how this history is continuing to be written. How many of you have seen Reservation Dogs? All right. Really, really an impressive show. It recently completed a three-season run. It is easily one of the most fascinating and unique shows I have ever seen. Also, the episodes are all like 20 minutes, so they're very, very quick and uh, digestible, though they get a tremendous amount done in like 20-something minutes. Uh, consistently has made television critics uh, top 10 best shows of the year. It follows the lives of four indigenous teenagers coming of age on a reservation in rural North Carolina, rural Oklahoma, and the surrounding cast of adult characters is really interesting and it's really fascinating in this final third season. It really kind of shifts the focus to the adults and shows how these same uh, like generation to generation. There's some really interesting stuff done there. Uh, significantly, the show is created by all indigenous writers and directors almost with an almost entirely indigenous cast and production team. It's streaming on Hulu if you want to um, check it out. So if you prefer to watch TV rather than read a 500-page book, then uh, Reservation Dogs is for you. I like both. You know, you do you. Uh, three final quick examples, again, of how our, our, the history of an indigenous people's history uh, is, is still being written. First, last year, the U.S. government signed a cooperative agreement with the five indigenous tribes that, that surround the Bear Ears National Monument in Utah. Has anyone been there, the Bear Ears? Okay, I see a few hands. All right. A uh, representative from the tribe said, quote, instead of being removed from a landscape to make way for a so-called public park, we are in being invited back into our ancestral homelands to help repair them and plan for a resilient future. A U.S. Bureau of Land Management director called it, quote, an important step to move forward to ensure that tribal expertise and traditional perspectives remain at the forefront of our joint decision-making for Bear Ears National Monument. 
And it's no coincidence that this and a few other examples I'm going to show you, you know, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that a major catalyst for this progress is that the Interior Secretary today is Deb Haaland, the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. So she's a huge major force um, behind uh, this progress. The next example is also from last year, but much closer to home here in nearby Virginia, where the Rappahannock tribe uh, reacquired 465 acres. In a similar statement, we see the Department of the Interior saying it's an honor to join the Rappahannock tribe in co-stewardship of this portion of their ancestral homeland. We look forward to drawing upon tribal expertise and indigenous knowledge in helping manage this area's wildlife and habitat. And one final example in Idaho, an increasing number of road signs are being replaced to not just tell uh, historic examples from a U.S. perspective, but to include perspectives from indigenous perspectives, rights, and history. So it's up to us then, right, as you hold all of this history, all of the trauma, as well as some of the glimpses of hope, as we hold all of this in our heart and discern, how are we called individually and respectively to work for respecting indigenous people's history and rights? I invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1017, Building a New Way. We'll sing all four verses. <laughs> 